For typical service contracts, a customer will hire a company to perform a task. They'll get a quote, and once the work is complete, they'll pay for the completed work. This is not the case with large construction projects. Given the nature of the construction trade, it is not feasible for contractors to finance a project that could take months or sometimes years to complete. More than 100 years ago, the Supreme Court recognized the need for a different form of payment for large construction projects. Ongoing progress payments, which are typically made on a monthly basis. In Garini Stone versus P.J. Carlin Construction, the Supreme Court stated, as is usually the case with building contracts, it evidently was in contemplation of the parties that the contractor could not be expected to finance the operation to completion without receiving the stipulated payments on account as the work progressed. Most states have enacted statutes to address the inequity of having contractors and subcontractors having to wait months for payment for work and materials already performed, thereby making them the unwilling lenders financing the project. Massachusetts enacted its Prompt Payment Act in 2010. The Massachusetts law sets outside deadlines to be included in every construction contract of a certain size for approving or rejecting periodic progress payment applications. To the extent the owner wants to reject a payment application, in whole or in part, the law requires the owner to state the legal and factual bases for the rejection and to certify the rejection in good faith. If the owner fails to abide by the deadlines or rejects the payment application improperly, the payment application will be deemed approved and the payment will be immediately due. On Halloween 2016, Tati Building Corp. entered into a construction contract with IRIV Partners to construct a 150,000-square-foot building on Boston Seaport. During the project, the owners sought to withhold seven progress payments from Tachi, ranging in values from $500,000 to a million dollars each. The owner contended, among other things, that Tachi's work was deficient and that certain payment applications included double billing and other improper charges. But the rejections by the owner were not uniform. Some were after the deadlines for approving payment applications in the contract, some lack detailed explanations for the factual or legal bases for the withholdings. Some were made in simple email communications. And some lacked good faith certifications required by the statute. Litigation ensued. Tachi moved for summary judgment under the Prompt Pay Act, contending the payment applications should be deemed approved because of the inadequacies in the owner's rejections. The Superior Court agreed and entered judgment in Tachi's favor. The owner appealed. In the first appellate decision on the Prompt Pay Act in Massachusetts, the appeals court was tasked with deciding the scope and extent of the Prompt Pay Act and whether technical deficiencies in rejecting payment applications would override an owner's grounds for withholding payment. This is Tachi Building Corp. versus IRIV Partners.
Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. Today, we're looking at a case involving the statutory interpretation of a remedial law in the construction industry. Here to discuss the matter is construction attorney Brad Croft. Brad is the president, litigation department chair, and chair of the executive committee of the venerable Boston law firm Roberto Israel & Weiner. Brad represented Tachi in this case and was awarded the Massachusetts Lawyer of the Year Award for his work on this case and another important Massachusetts appellate case involving Tachi. Thanks for joining, Brad, and welcome. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. So the appeals court found in your favor, and the basic gist of the holding is that the Prop Pay Act means what it says. And here's a quote from the decision for the listeners, which I think sums up the court's reasoning pretty concisely. Quote, the point of the legislation is that these payments may not be withheld, even on valid grounds that they are not due because of a breach of contract, unless a timely rejection is made in compliance with the statute. Now, given the remedial nature of the Prompt Payment Act, this was no doubt the correct result from a statutory interpretation perspective and based on my understanding of the facts in the, of the case. But it's also not the most intuitive result because the owner still has the ability to maintain his or her uh, breach of contract counterclaims against your client. And so... When these issues are all being litigated in the same case, you know, on the one hand, you've got the contractor's prop payment claim. On the other hand, you've got the owner's breach of contract claim. And you go through all the steps of litigating successfully, I might add, your prop payment claim all the way up through appeal. You win there, but the case isn't over. And so, the question is almost, what have you gained unless and until you ultimately defeat the breach of contract counterclaims? So I guess my first question for you is, um, how did that, how does that issue or how did that issue come up in your case? And how should practitioners be approaching that issue in general in cases involving like this one? A common experience, prompt pay act claim, but valid or at least arguably valid breach of contract counterclaim. It all goes back to really the golden, the golden rule, which, uh, as I understand golden rule to be, uh, he who, or she who has the gold makes the rules and ordinarily for the last hundred, 200, probably longer, uh, period of time. It was the owner who held the gold. It was the owner who has the money, uh, who ultimately made the rules as to when and how and what the conditions were that needed to be satisfied by the contractor in order to then make those payments downstream. Um, a general contractor, uh, also having obligations downstream to subcontractors, uh, was often dependent on when and if the owner paid the money to the general contractor in order for the general contractor then to go ahead and make the payments further downstream. So in the context of a construction project, 
the key to this remedial statute is to keep the money flowing, meaning to go from the owner to the contractor, down to waterfall, down to the substance suppliers. That is the overarching purpose of the law. So even in the context of litigation, which I think is what your question is, what does a contractor stand to gain by succeeding on a prompt payment claim when they also are facing potentially having the real possibility of having to then just pay it back to the owner? And the answer is that why should the owner get to hold the money during the pendency of that dispute? Uh, why should a subcontractor be at the whim of a dispute between a contractor and a general contractor when the subcontractor has already performed uh, the work and many times uh, done so without issue or problem? So what the statute did, it said there are inevitably going to be disputes, whether they're large disputes or small disputes. But what we're trying to do is while those disputes are pending, uh, you have an obligation as an owner to go on record and let the contractor know exactly what the reason is why the contractor is not being paid. And unless that is a valid reason that has been certified in good faith in writing within the timeframes provided by the statute, then it's not going to be good enough and the contractor should be paid for the work they perform. If there is a dispute, as to that work and that the owner actually has a claim that in fact the contractor owes the owner money or should have to pay that money back, the, the owner can make that claim provided that they followed the statute's requirements. So in other words, if the contractor submits a payment application and the owner uh, rejects, it, rejects it in good faith and withholds money, at that point, that's valid. And as long as they have satisfied the requirements of the statute, the contractor is going to have to wait to get paid. And then there's a dispute resolution they can proceed on. If, however, the owner misses those deadlines, even if the owner has a good faith reason why it, it, it doesn't think it owes the money, at that point, what the statute does is it kicks in. It's been triggered. And at that point, the owner has to write the check to the contractor and then, provided they have made that payment, then the owner would have uh, uh, the ability to make the claim to get the money back, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So, and, and I guess the, the, maybe one of the goals is that, as you said, it keeps the money flowing. It keeps, it keeps the project moving forward. And if it were the other way, um, I guess where the owner was continuing to hold the money, you could potentially see all sorts of lien claims and, you know, other sorts of disputes that arise on a construction project that could potentially cause people to walk off. Then no one wins. Then you don't have a, a project being built at all. Um, so, I mean, right. I guess that could be potentially one of the, the points that, uh, that I think you've, um, nicely articulated. It's an, it's a bilateral relationship. Uh, the owner obviously wants a project built and built correctly. And the contractor wants to make sure that it's being paid for the work that it has performed. And I do think whether it's the lien statute or the prompt payment statute, uh, there are ways of trying to strike a balance between the relationship that ultimately 
allows either the owner or the contractor to pursue the objectives that it, it wants. Where does the case stand currently? So currently, uh, the court has uh, issued judgment in favor of our client, uh, final judgment, uh, and that has been paid. Uh, the, there's still a 93A claim that our client has under uh, General Laws of Massachusetts, Chapter 93A. Uh, and the owner has uh, its counterclaims against against our client. Um, we have moved for partial summary judgment on the owner's breach of contract claim. Uh, we argued that in July, and we're awaiting uh, a decision. Any trial date set? Not yet. Uh, we believe that based upon the argument that we made on the partial motion for summary judgment, that would likely... Um, uh, narrow the issues uh, for trial. And uh, I believe the court is uh, on the same page. So whether it's whether it was in regards to the Prompt Payment Act claim, which has been finally resolved, or um, the owner's breach of contract claims, which it sounds like you've moved for summary judgment on, was there anything in this uh, litigation or this case that sort of turned on a non-obvious event. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, whether it's, you know, finding a witness uh, to testify to something or filing a motion to compel and uncovering, you know, a smoking gun type document or, or some other um, thing that happens in, in litigation all the time, but it's, it doesn't show up necessarily on the docket. It doesn't show up in a court decision. Was there anything like that in this case, Brad, that, that you could explain to the listeners? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, and the answer is yes. And it was, uh, it was, it was COVID, frankly. Um, we had just cycled off. We had completed a jury trial in Middlesex Superior Court uh, on another case. Uh, and it was not a construction case. It was a partnership dispute. It was a two-week jury trial. Uh, we got the verdict on March 13th of 2020 in our client's favor. And we were somewhat, as you know, Bob, when you're on trial, you're, you know, the world sort of stops and you're sucked into this vacuum. Uh, and when we got the verdict on that Friday and made our way back into the, uh, the, the world, we learned about what was going on. I think I had watched TV for the first time in, in, you know, a month, uh, and the world had effectively stopped spinning. Right. And so one of the news headlines was at that time, uh, the fear that there were going to be bread lines forming because construction had come to a halt and how would the trades, uh, be able to make ends meet if their, you know, buildings weren't being built and, and, and payment recs not being paid. And, uh, my client and I had a conversation at that time and it, it struck me that this might have been, uh, the, the perfect time to actually see whether or not the prompt payment law had teeth. Because this, as you characterized it, is a remedial statute. It's there so that the money on a construction project continues to flow down to the parties who perform the work. And those are parties that if they're not being paid are truly the, the least able to afford to finance these large construction projects. And with that, that, that was really the impetus that we said, let's look at this very closely and see whether or not the facts of our particular case line up with 
the words that the legislature adopted and enacted in this, in this uh, law. And we felt that they did. And so we moved forward with a motion for summary judgment. We, we were very lucky to get one of the finest uh, trial judges uh, in Superior Court, Judge Rashuti, who's now the, uh, the Chief Justice of the Superior Court. And uh, with, with that, uh, we just went forward and we felt, you know, it was a, a long time ago. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate, as I know you have, Bob. Uh, we both come from law firms where we have uh, been trained by some really fine trial lawyers. And uh, whether I, I believe it was uh, Barry Weiner, who was one of the founders of my firm, uh, one of the things he said early on is that, um, you know, no matter what your case is, you should always try to tell a story have a narrative, have reasons there beyond just what might be in the law or what the, you know, the sort of the, the financial equations might, might compute out to be. Um, if there's a story there that someone can, can relate to, um, that oftentimes helps the case move forward. And that's what we had here was that the, the narrative of having a law on the books of Massachusetts that had really never been invoked which was designed to cure or solve a problem which had been laid bare based upon the world conditions at the time in March of 2020. It's fascinating. Now, as I mentioned in my intro, maybe another uh, timing question, you were the recipient of the Mass Lawyer of the Year Award in 2022 for your work on this case and another unrelated Tachi case. But the award, from my perspective, at least, is not the most impressive part of your work on these cases. It's the fact that both of these cases, at least at the appellate level in the appeals court and also the SJC, uh, they were argued during the same week. And so I'd like to know how you prepared for two oral arguments like this in the same week, you know, division of labor, uh, preparing for the presentations themselves, moot courts, any other insights about your process and your team's process for, uh, you know, for handling that uh, uh, gargantuan undertaking? Right. Um, well, you, you know, it's another great question. And um, it really was an enormous team effort, not just the RIW team, uh, but the larger construction bar team that uh, there were folks who were so interested in this. Uh, and, you know, as well as I do, Bob, that the construction bar, especially in Boston, is fairly uh, small. Uh, we know one another. Uh, we've been on both sides. Of, you know, we've either been on the same side of the case against each other, with each other, or against each other. So, um, you know, it's, it's a friendly bar. So I think that certainly uh, encourages people to, to talk. Um, so in November of 2021, uh, I had just unfortunately lost my dad. Uh, so it was a really, really tough time. And then it was almost a blessing that for the month of January, I was able to kind of sink myself into these cases. And it was a really um, a nice opportunity personally for me uh, to really focus in on cases which had just really interesting issues, challenging issues, uh, excellent lawyers on the other side of the cases. And uh, it was, um, a, like I said, a, a, a real team effort. Um, they were both on, I think the arguments were a day apart. So um, I had uh, 
internally, I had my partner, Kirk McCormick, uh, Roger Smurridge, who's to uh, uh, be with us here at RIW. Um, uh, we had John Edwards, uh, who uh, is a, a really fine trial lawyer. Um, and then I had other lawyers in Boston, uh, who you certainly know, um, who helped prepare me for the, uh, for the argument. They sat as a three judge panel, uh, on zoom and they peppered me with questions. Um, David Wilson, who helped write the prompt payment law, um, in the first place, uh, was one of those, uh, uh people as he's been for, for a long time, uh, is a good friend and, uh, just a real wise voice and someone I could, uh, I could talk to at the time. But it was a it, certainly challenging, a lot of long days and nights. But as you know, as a trial lawyer, it does not get better than that. I mean, it was exciting. It was challenging. It was satisfying. And we got, you know, it, we got lucky that the both, both of the cases we had, I think, the stronger side of the issue. And we were, I was fortunately able to, uh, with my team's help, communicate um, that side effectively enough that the courts agreed with us. You mentioned in one of your earlier answers the importance of story and narrative. And I, my question on, on the, the Tachi case, the prompt pay case in particular, um, did you go into the appellate oral argument with any particular themes or messages that you really wanted to convey? And if so, how did you develop those? Uh, good question. So on, on the prompt payment analysis, it was the same as it was always which is that, uh, you know, the, the, the statute is designed to keep funds flowing on the construction, on a construction project. It's that simple. And if an owner doesn't want to pay or doesn't feel it should pay, the statute provides a very clear way for an owner. They don't, they don't have to be right to challenge uh, a payment requisition. They have to certify that they're, they're rejecting it in good faith. But it doesn't mean that if they're wrong, they somehow have violated the statute. It just requires a response. It requires attention. And if an owner lets that deadline lapse or doesn't follow the form, then it can still have its claims heard as long as it then makes the payment to the contract, right? Because then it could just sue the contractor to get the money back. In our case, the owner didn't do either of those, didn't respond to the payment applications in time didn't certify them at all in good faith, didn't put anything in writing, and then didn't pay. So based upon those facts, uh, you know, it was a, an easier story to tell. Um, and it wasn't, there was no real dispute as to whether or not the, the requirements of the law had been met. So uh, it really was just hearkening back to the idea that, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, the, the subcontractors and the contractor really should not have to finance a construction project uh, during the pendency of, of a dispute. And that really seemed to carry the day. I want to um, shift gears for a moment to maybe the, the next theater of prompt pay litigation, which is the uh, gray core construction case that's sort of percolating up uh, to the SJC. And, and I think the oral arguments are this month or, or next month. And the, the, for the listeners, the primary issue is whether the Prompt Pay Act overrides common law defenses. And in this particular case, another sort of COVID era case, the question is, or the specific question is whether the failure to abide by the prompt pay rejection process, much like in your case, Brad, overrides the ability to withhold 
based on common law defenses like impossibility triggered by COVID-19. The Superior Court in that case, in Gray Corps, relying very heavily on your Tachi case, found that uh, the common law defenses were in fact overridden. And the SJC has decided, it was, that was appealed, and the SJC has decided to take the case. This is actually the first case that the SJC has decided to um, resolve on prompt pay grounds. Any predictions as to what will happen, or if you're not willing to go that far, any uh, analysis that could help uh, some of us paying attention to that case? So I, I haven't, uh, I'll confess, I haven't followed it terribly closely, but I do, I do certainly know enough about it. Um, I, I, you know, it gets back to this idea and I think it's, there are mechanics leads issues, if I'm not mistaken, also uh, in that case. And there's a, an argument that if in fact the mechanics lien at issue uh, was invalid, then in fact, so goes the prop payment case because the prop payment law is predicated on the notion that it only applies to contract for which a mechanics lien would be available. Uh, and in that case, I believe they're arguing that because the mechanics lien was determined to be invalid based upon the termination of the leasehold interest, that therefore the prop payment claim should suffer the same or similar fate. Um, but I think the issue that you identified is, uh, you know, the main one that people are interested in, which is if in fact the prompt payment law does supersede all contractual defenses, would that also apply to defenses which are not necessarily in the contract, but which common law has recognized as enforceable defenses that a party who has uh, been accused of having breached a contract um, can invoke. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, in, in my view, if you, and again, this is, uh, with, with what I said, I have not, uh, you know, taken a deep dive into the case, but I do think it's important to remember that this law, the prop payment law does pertain to contracts. If you look at the title of chapter uh, 149, section 29E, which is the prompt payment law, the word contract appears, I think, three different times. So it is specifically uh, uh, targeted to construction contracts. If you have common law defenses to a claim, the question in my mind is whether or not frustration of purpose, whether or not impossibility, are those common law defenses or are those common law contractual defenses? Um, and so I would be very interested to see what the SJC does with that part of the analysis. If in fact they are contractual defenses, then one would tend to think that they would be uh, superseded by, um, uh, by the prop payment law. If they're not, the, if they're just pure equitable defenses to a claim, then I think one could argue that, no, they fall outside of the purview of the statute. But, you know, remember that the legislature was very, very specific in the way that it said the prompt payment law would apply. It would only apply to certain types of construction projects of a certain type, meaning a certain uh, monetary amount, um, and 
only those construction projects for which there was a written contract. Um, same with the mechanics lien law. Mechanics lien law is a remedial statute for contractors. It does a tr an extraordinary thing, which it allows a contractor without having to prove its case to go into a registry of deeds and put a lien, an encumbrance on the title of the owner's property simply by virtue of the fact that it has made the claim that it's either owed money or that it's going to be owed money for the construction services it's going to be provided. That's extraordinary. And so what the legislature did is it tried to create more of a balance by saying, well, if we're going to give a contractor that type of an extraordinary uh, ability, we're also going to give the owner uh, an ability to get out from underneath that lien through an expedited process, which is the 15A summary discharge uh, process. The same thing applies in the Prop Payment claim, uh, Act, I believe, which is the legislature was very specific saying, we are going to do something here, which is pretty extraordinary. We're going to force an owner potentially to have to write a check to pay for work that it may not agree uh, it should have to pay for. Um, so if in fact that's the case, then there should be specific requirements and there should be some limitations on that extraordinary right. One of those limitations, I believe, is that it should only pertain to construction contracts and not to just any claim that an owner, uh, an owner may have. But as in our case, or rather a contractor may have, but in our, as in our case, it's really, you know, th this is uncharted territory. Uh, so it might be that the court interprets it completely differently, uh, in which case that would give you and me and a lot of other construction lawyers in, in, in Boston dealing with these issues every day, a lot more guidance on how we can advise our clients. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It, I had never thought of this, but it, the statute does specifically talk about, you know, in terms of the owner's rejection, the contractual bases therefore. And you raise a really good point. Is it a contractual basis to say, well, there was an impossibility or a frustration of purpose here? Certainly that's an excuse. It's a legal excuse. Does it rise to the level of a contractual defense? I hadn't thought of that, but I think that that really is uh, quite interesting. And it may require the court to to go back in, in time and really look at the, the genesis of, of those contractual defenses or those legal defenses, yeah. rather, excuse me. Uh, really right. interesting. So, well, I'll be on the lookout for that for that case. Uh, last question, Brad. It you pointed out it, earlier. It, it's a it's a small construction bar in Massachusetts, and it's a specialized area of the law. You know, they don't offer at least at most law schools they don't offer construction law. Um, maybe it's a, a a small topic in a you know an advanced real estate course or something like that, but it's it's reasonably specialized. And so, my question to you is, how do you break into construction law? Some of us have had the benefit of mentors at our firms that have you know stuck us on big litigations where you can kind of learn the concepts and. You know, you develop a familiarity with some of the common forms used in the industry. But if you don't have the benefit of that, and in particular, if you're trying to develop a facility on the transactional side, like I know you do both the litigation as well as the transactions like myself, what, what recommendations do you have to younger lawyers that are, that are trying to uh, get into this area of law? 
My first recommendation is to try to find a mentor, um, someone who has practiced in construction law, understands both sides of the, uh, of the equation, whether it's the transactional piece, writing the construction contracts, or even advising clients in terms of um, various risks that can be uh, uh, inherent in, in, a, in a construction project and the litigation side. Um, one great place to start is just understanding how the lien law works. I think that is a foundational requirement of any construction lawyer. Um, I was very lucky uh, to work with some of the real giants of construction law as a very young lawyer. And just by virtue of watching and listening and, and having to do it, uh, you start to pick up things and you learn. Uh, one of the lawyers I worked with early on told me that it is extremely important as a, as a lawyer to learn an area and really understand it inside and out that you can understand it as well as anyone who also is practicing in that area. Uh, and then to surround yourself with other lawyers who do that type of work. And so I became active in the BBA uh, Committee on Construction Law, which has now been, I believe, folded into the real estate section uh, at the BBA. And it was just a, a fantastic opportunity every month to come together. There would be these brown bag lunches. Uh, people would talk about current cases, uh, sometimes there was no agenda and people would just have questions and, and it was a arena to not just get to know other lawyers, but to really understand some of the, um, the, the, the more exciting or cutting edge changes in, for example, the AIA documents as they continue to evolve. Uh, I got very involved in the American Bar Association Construction Forum. Um, that is a national organization. They have two different, uh, I think at least two different national meetings every year and they put on programs, which if you attend, uh, you really get to learn uh, the specifics of this, of this area of the law. And lastly, and this is uh, really more luck than anything, is um, to eventually have clients who trust you and trust that you know what you're talking about and that you've, you've seen these things before, um, who trust you to handle their problems and to help them solve these challenges that come up on construction projects, like we talked about. And in fact, this came up during my appeal argument uh, in Tachi. Um, on a construction project, especially a complex construction project, there are dozens of issues that come up every day, whether it's the bricks and sticks of what's going on in the ground or the financing or some lease or some butter or uh, you know some insurance issue. Um, construction law really is an area that extends so far uh, across many different disciplines. Uh, and so when a client trusts you and brings you kind of in, inside the tent to understand what questions are that they need to have answered, um, just by necessity, you learn the area so that you feel confident that when you're giving the advice, you're giving the right advice. So that would be my, uh, my advice to, to younger practitioners or newer practitioners we're thinking about construction laws in the area of expertise. Brad, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck to you on all of your future cases. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Same to you. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at burnkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments. Judgments.